This podcast is intended for UK and Ireland healthcare professionals only. It is my pleasure to welcome you to episode two of the ILD Academy Spotlight podcasts brought to you by Boehringer Ingelheim. Featuring prominent members of the UK and Ireland interstitial lung disease community, these podcasts hope to shine a spotlight on the great work that is being done around the country and break down some of the challenges facing us as we deliver excellent care to our patients. My name is Dr. Anne-Marie Russell, a clinical academic at the University of Exeter Respiratory Institute and Royal Devon and Exeter NHS Foundation Trust, with a special interest in patient-reported measures and outcomes in interstitial lung disease and patient-centred approaches. Joining me on today's episode is Mariam Nakvi, a specialist interstitial lung disease pharmacist working at uh, Guy's and St. Thomas's NHS Foundation Trust. Welcome, Mariam. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. I wonder if we could start uh, by asking a little bit about you and your role as a specialist interstitial lung disease pharmacist. Yes, absolutely. So I, as you, as you um, very kindly introduced, I'm a specialist interstitial lung disease pharmacist at Guy's and St. Thomas's um, and part of the King's Health Partners ILD service. Um, I chair the ILD pharmacist network, um, which is a, a good 35 people strong now um, and growing, um, which is quite exciting. Um, I'm also the IT and social media lead um, for the ILD IN. Um, and I think I'm, I'm quite fortunate to um, look after ILD patients full time as part of my role. Um, and we cover um, a population of patients in London um, and further afield. So including um, patients from the southeast um, of England, all the way down to the coastline and nationally. Gosh, huge area. Uh... Could, could I just clarify, Mariam, the uh, ILD in, that's the Interstitial Lung Disease Interdisciplinary Network, is that correct? Yes, absolutely. Um, and you said that you uh, coordinate the pharmacist networks, 35 specialist pharmacists now working in interstitial lung disease across the UK, that's quite phenomenal. It is brilliant. So um, they may not necessarily be specialists in interstitial lung disease, but they are certainly respiratory specialist pharmacists with an interest um, and involvement in ILD patients. Um, and as you know, I, I think I, I've given lots of talks about the, the impact of a pharmacist in the ILD uh, multidisciplinary team. Um, and more and more business cases are being you know, formed and brought together to encourage all ILD specialist centres to have a specialist pharmacist within the team. Yeah, no, that's, that's fantastic. Um, and that probably leads me on quite nicely to ask a little bit more about the, the patients that you see uh, and the structure of your clinics. So yes, so my role involves um, counselling patients on their diagnosis um, of their condition um, and the proposed management um, that, that we are able to offer. Um, and as part of my initial consultation, I will undertake a, a medication review. Um, and often that involves deprescribing some inappropriately prescribed medicines, um, but also optimising the therapies that have been prescribed for um, potentially other conditions. 
Um, I am involved with the supply, the monitoring um, of immunosuppressants, including tacrolimus um, and antifibrotics. Um, and a large part of my role involves communication with primary and secondary care providers. Um, and that will include the respiratory community teams, um, the GP practices um, and the secondary care providers as well. Um, and I guess as part of this work, um, I, that, that's, that's pretty much my day job. But as part of this work, I have lots and lots of interests and ideas. Um, and we've been working on developing an automated interstitial lung disease register. So a live database of our patients at Guy's and St. Thomas's. Um, and this has really helped to focus our service delivery. Um, and it was really helpful over COVID to identify where our patients were. Um, but it also helps to identify um, education needs and where we should focus um, and identify patients for research and clinical trials. My other interests will include patient mapping. So we've, we've looked at how our patients go through our service. So from the point of referral from a secondary care provider, what you know, what, what services we, we offer. And then when we transfer patients back into primary, secondary care, how we end up sharing the overall management for, for the patients. So we've drafted this and tried to optimize it um, and improve the pathways um, with some of our patient representatives. And that's been really interesting. Um, and my main research interests include um, the use of um, digital technology to improve equitable access to specialist care for our patients with interstitial lung disease. Um, and as part of that, we, I've been undertaking a home spirometry project um, with our ILD patients. Okay, you sound like an incredibly busy clinician, Mariam. And um, there's, there's lots that I want to come back to explore in a little more detail, but um, you mentioned that a lot of the patients that you see, you, you take them undertake a medication review, and I suspect that a number of patients you see also experience um, multimorbidity. So that sounds to me like it's a key role for managing uh, polypharmacy for these patients and a key connection with primary and secondary care. Yes, so um, you're, you're right, you're absolutely right. Um, lots of our patients may have gone through um, an airways diagnosis, airways disease diagnosis before they um, are diagnosed with interstitial lung disease. So often they're on inhalers that are possibly not, um, you know, possibly causing more harm than any benefit. Um, there's no evidence for the use of them in patients with interstitial lung disease. Um, and they are very costly to the environment and the NHS. Um, and so they are probably one of the first things that we can deprescribe. Um, but equally, patients that have other comorbidities, um, so if they were to have coexisting airways disease, it's really important that we optimise um, the doses and medications um, to ensure we're appropriately managing both conditions. Yeah, yeah, no, no, fantastic. Um, and so thinking uh, about the, the patient contact that you have, I'm guessing that a lot of the face-to-face -face has possibly gone to uh, digital connections now? Yes. So um, I think we were looking into this pre-pandemic. Um, we serve, as you know, a large population um, and often patients have had to travel long distances um, to come and see us in a tertiary care setting. 
Um, what's most difficult for this cohort of patients is that they are already, you know, symptomatic, so very breathless. Some of them depend on oxygen. Some of them depend on carers to bring them into appointments. And those carers then have to take a day off work. Um, and it's a, a significant journey for patients to come in to the, the specialist centres to be reviewed. So we were looking into this and I, I remember January 2020, um, I went to a meeting about um, the use of a remote monitoring platform um, and in, it, was, it was targeted at complex diseases and the management long term. And I left the meeting thinking, this is amazing, it's novel, it's very exciting, but it's actually never going to happen or it's going to be a very long time away. Um, and fast forward, the the COVID pandemic, I think, has accelerated um, our, our digital journey. Um, and we, we have changed a lot of our practices as a result. So our consultations have moved from a face-to-face -face setting to a hybrid um, model where we have telephone consultations, video consultations, and still, of course, see patients face-to-face -face where appropriate. Um, I think it's also opened up lots more um, messaging so we can text message patients their next appointment um, and that's reduced a lot of DNAs because they didn't get the letter in the post um, and we have an email um, inbox where patients can send their communication. It gets triaged to the most appropriate member of the team and we respond in a timely manner. So I think, I think the pandemic has accelerated our journey. Yeah, no, no, that sounds amazing. Um, and, and in relation to those uh, digital uh, offerings, are, are there any sort of, um, we've talked a little bit about successes, I'm, I'm just thinking about maybe challenges, maybe some challenges from the patient side as well. Yes, so I, th I think, I don't think we can deny the, that there are lots and lots of benefits um, to digital health, but there are also some, some challenges um, that affect that affect our patients. So, not all of our patients have um, the the access. So, um, they may not have the technology to support um, the use of um, video consultations, um, and they may not have the connectivity. So, some of our patients will struggle to get a connection, an internet connection. It's less common, I would say, with our London patients because the connections are very good and a lot of our patients um, will already have the devices. But it's something I've noted for our patients further afield um, that live in more rural areas where they may struggle to get um, connection to the internet. And that makes video consultations tricky because there are, there are constant issues with, with being able to speak to our patients. There are also issues with confidence, I think. So some of our patients use smart technology on a regular basis. So if we were to ask them to have a video review with us, they're very happy to. Um, equally, if we wanted to roll out any initiatives like home spirometry or use a remote monitoring platform, they are very um, receptive to it. But others are less confident with the use of technology um, and that's, I think, sometimes the, 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 where the challenges occur. I, and I guess some of those challenges around digital literacy are, are possibly socio-political, that, that you may not be able to influence as an individual. 
Absolutely. I mean, I think we recognize that there are some patient groups who are digitally more likely to be digitally excluded. Um, But I will always say that patients are individuals. So we recognize that older patients may may not have the connectivity or the access. But in a clinical setting, I have often if I have a 79 year old um, on the telephone who, you know, is is very adherent, very interested in managing their own condition. Um, I have broached the, the subject and said, do you have a smartphone? Um, and most often the reply is yes. So I think it's difficult to make the generalizations, although we know that older patients are less likely to have the access. So I think it's important we treat all patients as individuals, but recognize that there are some patient groups who who may not um, have as easy access as others. Um, and that includes those, um, so I mentioned the rural um, patients earlier with the connection issues. Um, we have some language barriers, so some people um, don't don't read or um, speak English very well. Um, and actually we, some ha- we have some patients who um, don't read or write. Um, and so for those, it's, it's really useful to have um, find a, a mechanism by which we can offer them optimal health care. So, so thinking about that group, but also thinking about uh, your whole patient group, um, what do you think the future is for digital care uh, telemedicine? And um, are you working on anything at the moment that might be uh, securing the future? Yes. So, I mean, the future is, is digital um, and it's really important that we start working with, with our patients from now to co-design um, a care pathway um, that, that meets the needs of our patients, um, but also has a positive impact on the healthcare professionals looking after them as well. Um, so I mentioned the home spirometry project um, that I'd started about a year ago. Um, and it was uh, an offering from Boehringer Ingelheim um, under a grant. We were we were given 60 spirometers. Um, we have rolled it out across our patient population. Um, and what we've learned over the last year, and we hope to publish on some of this as well, is um, the the absolute benefit of using a a the the, the tools to monitor patients at home. So I think we've we've recognized patients who are declining can be picked up quicker. Patients who may have an infection, again, we can identify that from the use of, of these tools. Um, so it's really important um, to, to, to recognize that these are very useful tools to help our patients manage their own conditions. Uh, the issues with home spirometry um, and the project we, we undertook um, was was based on on the application that the patients were using. So unfortunately, um, there was no patient feedback. Um, so patients weren't able to recognize whether or not things were going in the right direction, if things were stable. Um, there was no green flash to say, yes, things are, are brilliant. So our patient, patients fed back and said, actually, I don't really know whether or not um, this is having any impact, even though we were monitoring them um, when we received the results. The other difficulty with our with the results is there was no trend. So for healthcare professionals, there was a lot of work involved in plotting the readings on a weekly basis to then um, recognize whether or not 
uh, the patient is stable or whether or not there's there's been a decline or in some patients a, an improvement. So following on from there, um, we, we put in an application to NHS Digital um, to explore the use of a remote monitoring platform um, with, with our partners, Patient Empower. Um, and we partnered with uh, an NHS trust. We partnered with Royal Devon and Exeter um, and also with the, the, the patient charity um, Action for Pulmonary Fibrosis. Uh, and you know we were successfully awarded um, a sum to carry out uh, this this project going forward um, to implement this remote monitoring platform, patient empower, in the management of our patients with interstitial lung disease. Um, so we're very much at the beginning of this journey, but it's a really exciting one because um, we have all recognised the benefits of uh, improving the remote monitoring of our patients. And um, we just need to find a better way to deliver um, this, both for patients and for healthcare professionals. Uh, that sounds uh, like a wonderful opportunity, Mariam. I think also you said, I liked your expression, the future is digital. Um, I think also you highlight that the future is also about partnership working between NHS trusts, uh, industry and patient charities as well. Um, so that all the voices are, are represented at the table. Um, so as part of the uh, NHSX project, will you be giving uh, home spirometers to all your patients within the interstitial lung disease service? Yeah, so uh, again, we're in the planning stages, but we are going to focus, um, I mean, it will be rolled out over a number of years, hopefully, but initially we will focus on patients um, potentially with a progressive fibrotic phenotype um, where we are able to monitor them more closely um, and then um, make any changes to their to their therapy um, quicker than we would otherwise in a clinical setting. Um, but yes, the, the idea is it will be open to, to more, more of our patients. Um, and in addition to using the home spirometers, we will also be using oximeters um, to monitor oxygen saturations at home. Um, but I think what's really interesting and it's quite exciting is that we can use the remote monitoring platform to deliver more to our patients. So, for example, um, putting in a, a video of how to use your home spirometer um, will positively you know, reinforce any um, live training that's been given to a patient and often I think when someone's telling me lots of things at the same time I'd quite like to go back and and uh, and see how it's done uh, in my own time so um, I think there's lots of opportunity for us to add resources um, on on their diagnosis on their conditions but also their um, their medication and how we can manage things like breathlessness so we can talk through breathlessness management techniques um, and all of this should be accessible on an app on your phone. So, so essentially patients are also getting access to a lot of educational resource as, as well as the clinical parameters for their disease progression or stability as well. There's also an opportunity for a bit of artificial intelligence um, and the idea is in hopefully not the too distant future um, a patient will be able to go to their app um, and identify that they are feeling more breathless today. 
um, and then they will um, be directed to some 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 further questions. Um, one of those could be to try and identify um, signs and symptoms of a chest infection potentially. Um, and if they answer yes to a certain number of questions, they then get referred to using their rescue pack of antibiotics that they already have at home or contacting their GP um, or NHS 111. Um, and I think it's more about directing patients to the most appropriate healthcare provider at the right time. Yeah, no, that sounds great. So, so Mariam, given this technology um, and the wealth of information that patients can access uh, remotely, do you think we're facing redundancy? <laughs> um, absolutely not. I think I have never been busier. Um, and that's with the use of, of home technologies. Um, I think it's important to recognise that these are tools um, to help us manage patients um, and help patients manage themselves at home. So ideally, um, a patient can use their oximeter, their home spirometer, um, and, and manage their own condition. But when they need the support, they need to have access to their specialist at home. Um, and I think one of the, the, the key points I've picked up um, over the last year or also that we've been we've been undertaking a lot more digital health is um, picking up things like anxiety and depression we will often send our patients some screening tools um, so we use phq9 um, and gad7 um, and patients respond to them but they do need a specialist to look at the responses um, and if there is any additional support required it's really important that we are as accessible to patients um, at home as we would be in a tertiary centre. I, I think that sort of psychological burden of disease is is very important. And I, I wonder, Mariam, if you think, I guess it's it's a challenge given the pandemic experiences we've had, but do you think that these approaches to self-management uh, potentially ease that psychological burden or do you think they add other factors? So a lot of the, the patients I look after are, are keen to, to self-manage um, and often they um, seek support from, from their own network. So um, their, their families, their carers, their friends. Um, and, and so there are absolute benefits to patients managing their own condition. The, the, the difficulties arise, I think, when, when patients don't necessarily recognise um, that their, you know, their, their symptoms or their state can be managed at home and they seek urgent care. Um, and it's, I, I think it, it's our role to educate patients um, and encourage them to seek care at, in, in a timely manner, um, but at the most appropriate um, place for them. Uh, what we don't want repeatedly happening is patients getting admitted um, for, you know, a pulse of steroids and then discharged back home because, you know, that's that's not always helpful. So, so that element of, of education alongside things like FVC and uh, oxygen saturation, I, I, I guess we, we know the old adage, the trend is our friend, but that will help patients to, uh, to stay at home and to access help from home rather than unnecessary uh, hospital admissions. Yeah, I think this reduces patient isolation. So since we've been offering this remote model, we've had more referrals to initiate um, medicines like antifibrotics. Um, initially, patients didn't want to make that journey to London Bridge. 
um, and, and that was perfectly um, understandable. But now that we've we've improved our, our digital health and improved the way that we can offer care to these patients, we've had more people say, yes, I'm willing to, to give these antifibrotics a go, but I'd like to have telephone consultations or video consultations. Um, and we've managed them very well um, using this, this mode. Yeah, that's excellent. Thank you so much, Mariam. It's been a really interesting conversation. And so I'm very much looking forward, as I'm sure the listeners are, to uh, the outputs from the NHS Digital Project on home spirometry and um, monitoring at home for patients. And I would like to thank you for your time and speaking as speaking with us today uh, in episode two of the ILD Academy Spotlight Podcasts. Thank you, Mariam.